This is Leader ReadyCast, a monthly podcast featuring real-world lessons, best practices, and action-oriented insights for the Urit moments when you're called upon to lead. Leader ReadyCast is the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to the latest episode of Leader ReadyCast. I'm your host, Eric McNulty. This month, we're looking at building a powerful culture on your team and in your organization. That can be tough, particularly in large institutions such as government agencies and legacy corporations. Yet there are steps that anyone can take that will make an enormous difference. To shed some light on what you can do, my guest today is Patty McCord. Patty is perhaps best known for her work as Chief Talent Officer at Netflix, where she helped create the Netflix Culture Deck that has been viewed online more than 15 million times. Patty is also a veteran of Sun Microsystems, Borland, and Seagate Technology. Today, she advises a small group of companies and entrepreneurs on culture and leadership. Her book, Powerful, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility, was named one of the leadership books to read in 2018 by the Washington Post. Now I know some of you are wondering, why did we ask someone with such a rich tech industry background to join Leader ReadyCast? As many of you work in large traditional organizations, I think you'll soon figure that out because Patty has some really interesting insights to share with you derived from the Netflix culture and her other experience that you'll be able to put to work right away. Welcome Patty. You know, in your book, you note that you turned a lot of so-called HR best practices upside down. Could you give us a couple of examples and tell us why you wanted to do things differently? Sure. And it wasn't necessarily that I set out to reject HR best practices. I just set out to question them. Remember, I was in a company where we were reinventing the way you watch video. And to be honest with you, what sparked me to relook at some of these things was just, I was tired of being the only one that didn't get to do things innovatively and differently. So for example, uh, we had gone public and it was time to take a look at our policies around paid time off. And of course we had the same paid time off policy as everybody else did. And my CEO asked me one day, do you have to have paid time off? Is it legally required? And I answered, like the HRVP that I am was, um, I said, of course you do. Everybody's got paid time off. And then I said, you mean legally? And I went to look it up and I found out in California, which is where we were operating at the time, there were lots of laws and regulations around hourly workers, but there wasn't any specific regulation that required paid time off for salaried workers. So I started thinking about how I measured performance for salaried workers and who professionals, right? Who, who got promotions, who got ahead and who didn't and who left the company. And I realized I'd never fired anybody for being tardy or absent. I had said goodbye to people for sometimes being at work all the time and not getting much done and to other people for um, not showing up and therefore they didn't get much done. But the answer was I could measure how they were doing by the work that they accomplished, not by whether or not they were in the office. Secondly, I started realizing that so much of the work that we can do now, we can do, you know, think about it. You hold your computer in your hand now. Isn't it funny that we call it a phone? <laughs> you know, it really 
you know, it's a phone, it's a computer, it's an Encyclopedia Britannica, it's a camera, it's a video player. I mean, it's all of those things that I used to think about. I, one time I thought, why is it that people come to work? Oh, yeah, because we used to come to work because our stuff was there. <laughs> like our computers, right? The big thing that you pulled out from under your desk, but you don't have to do that anymore. Anyway, so I went back and I realized that if I had a company full of adults who were smart and who were interested in the problems that they were solving, who had good judgment, I probably don't need to tell them when to take time off. Secondly, it's best managed locally. It's best managed in the team that you're working on. So if you're in finance and it's the end of the year, year-end close happens every year after the end. <laughs> so regardless of what holidays you put in, it's unlikely that if you're in, a fin in finance in a corporation that you get the first two weeks of January off because you're working on the close. That's an example. So what I did was I stood up in front of the company and I said, we're going to try an experiment. We're not going to keep track of time off. We're gonna let you keep track of it in your organization. And here's what everybody tells me is going to happen. First of all, we'll get sued. And the reason we're gonna get sued is some people will take more time off than other people. So here's a big secret I wanna tell you. They already do. <laughs> there, there are already people who take more time off than other people. And so far, nobody sued each other about that. So let's just, let's just put that out there. Secondly, we're going to focus on what you get done, and we're not going to focus so much on whether or not you're present or absent or tardy. And so everyone in the world, all my HR friends, all my lawyer friends tell me this is the dumbest idea we've ever had. It won't work either. No one will come to work and nothing will get done, or people will be workaholics and they'll burn out. So those are the spectrums of what people tell me will happen. But I'm going to trust you to be adults, and we're going to try this. And if it doesn't work out, we'll just go do what everybody else does and we'll call it best practices. That was probably 12 years ago, maybe 15. And Netflix still doesn't, you know, they, now that they're global, they have to operate the policy differently in different, in different countries. But the truth was when I did that, I found that people, what happened was people took the time off they always did. They had kids in school, they took off school holidays and sometime in the summer and maybe a ski vacation, right? The young single people took uh, three weeks off and went hiking in the Himalayas. I love three-day weekends. <laughs> and what was different was people felt like they had ownership in making sure that they got their work done and their teammates were informed and people started planning their time off you know, much farther in advance. And people started talking about how do we cover for each other when somebody's gone, so-and-so is gonna have a baby, how, you know. So the conversation about paid time off was a conversation about getting your work done, not following the rules. I think it's really interesting that one of the words you've used most frequently so far is adults. Uh -huh. uh, and the assumption that people are adults and will, and will behave that way and when, at least when I think about traditional approaches to organizational behavior, um, there seems to be an assumption that people will either not be adults uh, or perhaps it's legacy thinking from when everyone had to be at their station or the production line at exactly the same time in order for the, the widgets to make their progress down, down the line. I'm not sure, but I think that uh, that leads to thinking that people are, are adults, that they have judgment, that they will do the right thing, they will take care of each other, and, and you, as you say, not just not show up 
uh, that should be more committed committed to each other um, is not nearly as it, it sounds more radical than it should be, but I think it hit people as a as a really uh, a different way of thinking about how to treat people in an organization. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, and I have two comments on what you just said. One of them is, no matter how you get to work, wherever you are in the world, if you're on the subway or you're in traffic or you arrive in the parking lot, I want, let's say you arrive in the parking lot of wherever it is you work, I want you to look around at all those cars parked in the parking lot and say to yourself, yep, they all came, they're all parking here because they want to walk in the door and sue us. The other comment I have is, the behavior and the rules around co uh, controlling people's behavior so they do the right thing get worse and worse as the jobs go from senior to, to junior or from highly skilled to, to hourly workers. And so, you know, the people that we treat most like children are hourly workers, for example. And I, I often say, like, you know, even if you're making minimum wage, you probably pay rent. You probably have a car, right? You probably have responsibilities. You are probably an adult. You may be a young adult and you may be early in your career and you may not have a lot of life experience and maturity, but that doesn't mean you're 11. And so, and the, that, so that's one thing is, and so when we treat people like children, it, it amazes me all over the world where people are surprised that they act like it. And, and when we lower our expectations for people, then people perform to expectations. Here's, here's one of my sayings. I say, I believe that people perform to your expectations. And if you expect mediocrity, that's exactly what you'll get. But if you expect excellence, you'll be surprised what you get, even from mediocre people. I, I just, I've been doing this 35 years, right? I mean, I don't think that people set out to screw you or mess up or cheat or, I think most people want to go home from work and I always say, tell their, tell their roommate or their spouse or their pet, it was a great day at work today, comma, we got a lot done. Yeah, it's a good point. That's a very good point. And I think people do live, live up or down to expectations. Most of us want to do a good job and be proud of it. Yeah, I mean, I, it's not just most of us. I, I mean, I really think all of us. And, you know, I, I'm remodeling my house right now, and I am in awe of my carpenter. I mean, he is an artist. <laughs> and there's not that many people that swing hammers with finesse anymore. And, it, you know, it's funny that, that we compartmentalize people and their, their drive or their pride into the components of the work that they do. And I'm sure this happens in big institutions and in government all the time. You know, you make assumptions about people based on their rank, you know, with the, their GSA rank or their um, title or their education. Absolutely, Patty. Now, I'd like to ask you to take a little bit of a leap with me. Imagine that you've just landed as chief talent officer at a mythical agency we'll call the Entrenched Bureaucracy Administration. In our vernacular, you're it. What are the green flags and red flags you'd look for in assessing the culture? What are the initial steps you'd take in that role? Well, first I'd look for the adults, right? I would look for people who, and, and this is very easy to see. <laughs> you know, the opposite happens to me out here in California when I go to a, a Silicon Valley startup and they've got a bartender on file, I mean, on, on payroll, and they have somebody whose job is called chief happiness officer. So that's the complete opposite of the job you just gave me. But I would say the same thing. What I tell them is, 
find three or four people in your organization who are doing amazing work that everybody looks up to that are respected. And, and when you go talk to them, you'll find that they get tremendous amounts of work done uh, and they're proud of it and they demonstrate that. And most of the work that they did that they're proud of was hard, right? So the people who take the easy street or the people that are just going to work to clock in, they're not the amazing people. So then I would take a look at what systems we have in place and what we intrinsically reward. And one of the biggest issues, in, and I don't know that I could wave a magic wand and change it, but one of the biggest issues in large corporations and um, in the sector, the public sector, is that people are rewarded for tenure. And so they're rewarded for literally just being there. And so that, that's what I would look to see if I could possibly change or tweak something around the systems of, of rewards and promotions that promotes the people that do amazing work. Because I believe in every organization there are people that do amazing work. The other thing is to change the spotlight on who gets attention. And I find that in large organizations and bureaucracies, the bureaucracy is built to weed out the bad apple, right? And the whole system is focused on finding that bad person and, you know, doing something to them when the system should be rewarding all the rest of the good apples, right? Making, making sure that they are in the right, whatever the metaphor is, right? So I, I guess that I would start very slowly so if back to the Netflix culture deck, which you referenced earlier, I want you to know that took 10 years to write. So when you're making changes in a large organization, probably the best advice I would give myself is be patient. Pick the most, change the, change the fewest things with the highest impact that you have the control over to change. I guess that's how I'd approach it. I'd probably go crazy, but I would approach mm -hmm. it that well, I think one of the things that, that is one of the assumptions baked into that bad apple system you described a moment ago uh, is the desire to minimize deviance uh, and an assumption that there is the, the bad to be weeded out. Uh, it's a lot about control. Uh, yeah. And it can be a great fear factor in giving up that control and embracing the kind of approach you're talking about. So in your work, what have you seen of the obstacles to getting managers to, to embrace that mindset of trusting people to be adults and, and how do you overcome those obstacles? How do you get them on board? I think it's just a matter of opening people's eyes to things that they already know. I mean, when you really, I, I think in any organization, um, the talented people stand out. And it's not that they're inherently talented because talent itself doesn't accomplish anything, right? It's talent in doing the job that somebody needs to do on time with quality that serves the customer, right? So I think that when you open your eyes and you look for the other end of the spectrum, the people that are doing amazing work, then you can start to look at the, you know, what are the characteristics and traits of those people? And then say, well, are more, are there more people like them than we think? And there probably are, right? So it's that, that just completely shifting focus to the other end of the spectrum changes a lot of things. The other thing is that I've found in large bureaucracies, 
or highly regulated environments, there's an assumption that there's a regulation that governs everything, right? When I go to banks, for example, they say, well, you know, this stuff that you talk about, it's really interesting, but you don't understand we're a bank and we're highly regulated. We can't make any changes. And I'm like, really? The way you do performance reviews is regulated? right? The way you give people feedback is regulated, the way you reward, I mean, and it may be so in governments that literally everything is regulated, but I invite people to go back and say, are you sure? Right? And the other thing is a lot of the systems that we have that, you know, are highly controlling that keep people from doing bad stuff are actually systems that kind of drive people to do bad stuff. The, the performance improvement plan that's a big fat lie. You know, that's three months of just making somebody miserable. And I just find, even in just interactions between people, that humans do better with the truth. And so the controlling and the regulation is ways for us to get around telling people the truth. And I think you just get a lot more done. It's a lot more efficient when you can just look somebody in the eye and say, here's a way I think you could do it better. Because when you do that, most people say, thank you. Yeah, I will say it's amazing. Uh, it's radical, isn't it? Direct, direct <laughs> communication, it's, it shouldn't be revelatory, but it is an amazing thing. Yeah, and we've yeah. and we you know here's how you get better at direct communication. You practice. Yeah. Right. You just try try the little things, right? I, I coach a lot of young women now, and I say, here's how to avoid sexual harassment in the in your future career. Say to the person who talks to you, looks at you, touches you inappropriately when you're 20. Hey, stop doing that. That makes me uncomfortable and it's weird. <laughs> the other person will say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that. And they'll stop. And then they won't keep doing it when they're 45 and say, whoa, nobody's ever said anything. It's an extreme example, right? But it's an example of, you know, you can say to somebody after a meeting, you know, hey, Eric, you know, you've been telling me about how much you disagree with the decision that we just made in the meeting, but this, it was a two-hour meeting and you didn't say anything. So how, how is anybody supposed to know how, what you think, right? So it would be helpful if you'd speak up next time because now you're just going to be mad. And I think you could hear that, right? You're not going to go home and weep in your, you know, weep to your cat about it. You're going to say, you're right, maybe I should have said something. In my experience working with senior teams at large organizations, be it a government agency or a private sector corporation, I've generally found there's a clear understanding of the culture's strengths and weaknesses. There are plenty of ideas on how to fix it, yet not a lot of action. What can executives at the top do to unleash that energy and potential to create meaningful change? I think it's just making time to have the conversations and making that as important as anything else. So, I mean, here's a management tool that I'm not a particular fan of, but a way to get around it. I'm not a particular fan of the anonymous employee engagement survey, which is, you know, how we take the pulse of the organization by asking everybody to answer a bunch of questions anonymously. And the reason I don't like that system is that it teaches people that you can only tell the truth behind anonymity, right? I can only tell you the truth if you don't know who I am. And I found that you're absolutely right. And for anybody who's a leader in any organization, if you can schedule time, and it doesn't have to be a lot of time, where you stand in front of, you know, you sit in a circle with a group of people that, and say, what can we do better? 
you know, what, what could we do? Anybody have any ideas? What are we good at? What are we great at? What do we suck at? Right. In a half an hour conversation. And the most important thing a leader can do in that meeting, the most important thing is listen. Because half of the time, people don't really want tra radical transformation. They just want to be heard, right? And so if they know that you're listening, and oh, by the way, um, you, it's exactly right. I have to give you a Netflix example. Back in the day, way, 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 way back in the day, Netflix was a DVD by mail business. So anybody who's in the audience who's in America knows this. Um, and so we were celebrating the day that we had shipped a million DVDs out of our warehouse. And so everybody got together for this big celebration because it was a very big deal. And we're clapping and the operations people are there and we're like, yay. And somebody in the audience said, you know, not that I don't think that's a wonderful thing and congratulations, you guys, but it doesn't really matter how many we shipped out of the warehouse. It matters how many people got them in the mail. <laughs> you know, and we all went, oh my God, you're right. <laughs> Oh, God. Well, of course. Right. And we had this was our number one thing we were measuring was how was our shipment rate, not the receiving rate. Now I have I, here's the here's the government entity experience. So we called up the post office and said, hey, we'd like your data and statistics on delivery, you know, in by zip code in certain areas. They're like, oh, God, we don't have that. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, we worked with the post office for a number of years to help them get better at their data analysis on delivery because it, it was worth it for us. But but it's just think about that example of the shift in the mindset. And that shift came from somebody who wasn't in operations, right? Who wasn't even remotely responsible for delivery of DVDs. It came from somebody who represented the customer, right? And so I think particularly in large organizations and large government organizations, the thing that that the other sector of the work, the thing that we do in, in tech particularly that's different is we, we try and serve the customer, right? We think about who's the end user and that makes you a better team because you realize who you're serving and you're not serving each other, you're serving someone who doesn't work. I think it's a really important perspective and I think that particularly for a lot of our listeners who are first responders, they work in, in disaster situations, yeah. Finally, after major events, it is not the four-inch book of regulations you're serving. It's the person who just lost their house. You know, and let's take let's take those kinds of people, right? If the if first responders and uh, law enforcement, um, let's let us hope this is adult behavior, <laughs> and and let us hope that these are people that we're relying on to make incredible judgment calls, right? And so that's where you want to look at which regulations help, you know, help people use their best judgment in a time where they, where they absolutely have to depend on it and which regulations are no brainers, <laughs> right? So for me, all the innovation I got to do, you know, when I talk to people now, they're like, oh, you got to do so many great innovative things at Netflix. I actually didn't. I didn't invent anything. I mean, I'm not that clever. The, the crazy stuff that I did, the crazy radical stuff I get credit for, is I just stopped doing stuff that was stupid. There you go. It's a, it's a good rule to live by. Just stop doing stupid stuff. Yeah, if, it's, if it doesn't make any sense and nobody cares and everybody hates it and it doesn't achieve what you set out to do, then here's a crazy idea. Don't do that anymore. 
<laughs> and sometimes and sometimes you do it and you think oh the sky will fall the sky will fall the sky will fall and nothing happens no that's right I think people are just waiting for someone to take the first step forward and, and do it yeah and you know the, and I and back to you know circling back to why I called my book powerful um, because I don't believe that we have the ability to empower anyone. And um, I think that people will walk in the door with power. And so the issue is that with all these rules and all these regulations and all this, you know, these binders full of, of stuff, guidelines and rules, that's how we take power away from people. So they don't use their brains, they don't use good judgment because we don't ask them to. And I think people are more than willing to step up and be smart. Absolutely. I think one of the interesting feedback mechanisms or tools that you use that you describe in the book is the practice of start, stop, and continue. Tell our listeners briefly how that works and, and what it does. Well, how it, so how it evolved was over the years, I was at Netflix for 14 years, and I think every single year I tried a different methodology for a performance feedback mechanism. And um, they were really complicated. It went from really, really complicated to really, really simple. And so where we ended up was, and we would do this in person and we would also do it in writing and as part of what we called our 360 pro process. But any, but any of you out there can use this methodology to give each other feedback on any team that you're on. And it is, I wanna tell you, hey, Eric, um, I'd really like you to uh, start reaching out to people who are kind of outside the norm, people like Patty McCord, <laughs> to get on your podcast because we kind of hear from the same old people and it'd be cool to hear from a different voice. I would like you to keep being the great host that you are because you ask really provocative questions and you, know, and, and you get really good stuff out of people. I'd like you to stop of maybe worrying about it so much before we get on air because it, you know you're you're prepared now you don't have to keep preparing for it so that was stop continue uh, that was start continue and stop i did them out of order but the reason why we did start stop continue is it's a way to give people not just feedback but action items right i'm not just saying you know you could do better <laughs> you could you could improve your on-air communication it doesn't tell you anything or you're a really good guy i like the sound of your voice so, you know that's what we mostly do in performance feedback and the recipients like okay well so what right and what you really want to, what you want to do with good feedback is you want to and and here's another thing about feedback that um, for all of your listeners that people miss all of the time We've come to talk about feedback and performance feedback. And we say that means that's equal to constructive criticism, which means we're gonna tell you something that might hurt your feelings or make you feel bad in a really nice way, okay? And it's like, if you think about your pets or your children, for those of you that have pets and children, I mean, it works, you know, it's called guilt tripping is what it really is, but it's really, it's low, right? So if you, I say, don't do that bad thing. That was a bad thing. That results in bad things. Stop doing that bad thing. Then the next time you do it, because you will, you'll feel bad, <laughs> right? So it takes a long time to correct behavior. But what we forget 
is that the most effective feedback is when you catch people doing something right and tell them, right? Right now, that last question you asked me, that was a great question. Make sure you ask that of everybody that comes on your show, right? And you'll be like, oh, that's great. And you'll go do it in yep. your next podcast, right? And so that's, that's another mindset for management is what if for the next week, no, next Monday when you come to work, I want you to spend the whole week and each and every day find somebody on your team who's doing something amazing and while they're doing it or soon thereafter, tell them so. That was great work. That thing you, that you did, that really mattered. Here's, here's what it mattered. And, and what you'll find is, man, people change their behavior really fast <laughs> with positive. I, just, I know it sounds so simple, but it's hard. No, and you're right. I mean, it, it makes great sense, but it's not the way most of our organizations have been set up where we... Or the rules around it, right? The rules around catching people screwing up, right? All that bureaucracy is about the bad apple again. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. And it just, you know, something that simple. The other thing about that kind of feedback is that's an easy one to practice. So that when you have to give people the more difficult feedback, the way you get better at doing that is practice. Patty, I'd like to ask you one last question. You note in your book that nostalgia is an early warning sign of resistance to change. We see a somewhat different wrinkle on this in that many people we encounter have previous work experience that remains central to their identity. For example, we see a click of former military or former law enforcement. I've seen organizations where the military vets, law enforcement vets, and civilians really go to battle over culture issues. What advice would you give to those trying to forge a culture distinct to the organization and not just a shadow of team members' pasts? You have to change the focus on what you're going to do the future and who you serve, right? Because in that example that you gave me, I'm assuming that everybody is somewhat on the same team to accomplish somewhat the same stuff. Yes. So it literally does not matter, right? And so I would say that uh, a metaphor for that would be any organization that is global goes to another country where there are different languages and different cultures and they figure it out, right? And so the, uh, here's, here's, the, here's the best metaphor that I didn't know when I worked at Netflix. So this is an outside of Netflix example. Since I've left Netflix, I spend a lot of time speaking to groups, and I'm often on stage at leadership forums with sports coaches. And when I'm with sports coaches, these people are so clear about how to perform, what the competition is, how to win, what your role is. I mean, and they give, they give their players feedback all the time, and sometimes it's really harsh, but it's all about winning the game. And they will tell you that the language of great coaching and great teams is the language of what that team needs to accomplish, not where you came from. And, and sports is a, is a great example. I mean, you know, who's the best player? Literally the best player. <laughs> and it doesn't matter where they came from. It doesn't matter if they say 2 o'clock or 1400. Right. It matters what they're accomplishing and performing and what they're, you know, what they're contributing to the rest of the team. So it's when the clicks form and the clicks aren't uh, there for the end game for the rest of the team and and it's self nurturing. You know, that's that's when it gets in those pockets that are really hard to break. 
Yeah, and I would guess if you can have that conversation again as part of the open feedback process and say, if it's going to improve our performance to say we're meeting at 1400 instead of two o'clock, great. Yeah, I mean, so it's, it's a numeral, you right. know, and, and it's, but it's, but, but people have emotion around numerals, I've found since I work with engineers my whole life. <laughs> but, but that's okay. We just have to name it. It's like, okay, well, there seems to be a lot of energy around the, the, these numerals. And so, and that is affecting us, our, our work output, how? Yeah. Right. And if, and if it is, then, then make it, and then measure it. That's the other thing we don't do is we don't measure these things. We opine about it work, whether it matters or not. You know, it's like I, I, it's the imp performance improvement plans. When I talk to huge groups of HR people, I'm like, raise your hand if your last 10 performance improvement plans resulted in pr improved performance. It's zero, right? Because it's a sham. And right. when when I talk to sports coaches and they talk to me about, you know, meeting with their players every other game to go over the stats of how they're doing and what their teammates are doing and what they need to practice and who the competition is and who they're going to beat. You know, I, I remember listening to a coach doing that when I was on stage one time and I looked at him and I thought, and, and the, the person who was uh, moderating the, the, the session, he says, you know, to the coach, you know, how is it that you win all these games? How is it that you work with all these amazing players? How do you get this incredible performance from your team members? And he described that, you know, I meet with them frequently and I give them a lot of feedback and we do a lot of data and we talk about the competition and what we're going to improve. And then he looked at me and he said, Patty McCord, I hear that you hate the annual performance review. Um, what do you recommend people do instead? <laughs> and I looked at him and I'm like, what he said? <laughs> <laughs> and I and I I remember thinking that look at that and you know I, and he just described a performance improvement plan and he meant it yeah and it worked I'm like too bad we couldn't do that anymore since it's become the sham to you know secretly fire you right and I think that's the point from what I've read about Netflix and companies such as I think Zappos is a good example that if you're not a great fit. They move you out quickly. They move you out humanely. There's an assumption that you're both adults and that there's some part of the responsibility for each one of you. So they treat you well out the door and everyone goes on to hopefully something better. Instead, what we've constructed is this elaborate apparatus to try and get you to quit before we have to fire you. Yeah, and here's the difference, I think, that, that is in some of your organizations true and others like first responders not. Um, but maybe so. Uh, Zappos is a great example. Zappos is a customer service organization, right. right? And people at Zappos talk to customers about shoes. That's it, right? And, and it's often people's first or second job in their career, and people get really excited about it. And to be honest with you, after a couple of years, you're probably sick and tired about talking of, you know, talking to people about shoes, and you're ready to move on. But there's nowhere else to move on in Zappos. That's all they do. You know, Zappos is bought by Amazon now, and Amazon does all the fulfillment. Right. Amazon's the website. So for Zappos, they're just being realistic, going, you know, this job isn't going to last forever. Let's just be clear. <laughs> and we know that you're going to get sick and tired of it. So when you are, don't get mad at us because we're not, you know, we're not providing career progression for you. There isn't much. 
<laughs> so then move on, okay? Because then we'll just do that because that's the truth. Netflix was a company where, you know, we did one thing. We provided video entertainment to our customers on a monthly subscription basis. So there weren't 10 other organizations to go to. And I would imagine in many of, of you know, if, if you're a first responder or what, whatever it is, you, know, you might have spent a long time thinking that this is what you want to do with your life, but you might realize it's not. And so the other thing I would say maybe to help you to conclude or to bring, bring it all together is our careers are journeys, even if we stay in the same organization. And so that sort of conversation, the most important conversation you should have is with yourself, which is, am I learning something every day that I feel is resume worthy, that is going to, that I'm continuously learning, that I'm fulfilled. And that when people start to realize that no matter where you are, 50% of, you know, more than 50% of where your career takes you is up to you then hopefully people will take more, um, more advantage of proactively making sure that they have great things to do and a great career. So the problem is we've come to rely on somebody else to take care of us for that, the company, the management, the government, right? And the truth is we have a lot of mobility, especially now, Right? I mean, it's great that the job market's tight. There's lots of opportunities for people. So, you know, you want to be treated better and do something different, go do it. Patty McCord, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. I've learned an awful lot. Listeners, I urge you to read Patty's terrific book, Powerful, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. It's really a great read. You can find out more about the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, along with resources available to anyone in the field, such as case histories and research reports, at our website, npli.sph.harvard.edu. We look forward to being with you for our next episode of Leader ReadyCast. Until then, remember that when the crisis hits, you're it. Be ready to lead. This has been another episode of Leader ReadyCast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to lead.